How was a person in ancient times supposed to approach a king? Well, there were protocols to follow. There was a certain way that you approached a king. And there was a certain way you did not dare approach a king if you intended to keep your head on top of your shoulders for very long. You had to know what that way was and what that way was not. How was a person to approach an ancient king? Well, before we can really answer that question, we have to ask, first of all, who is the king? We ask about the identity of the king and also about the identity of the one who is approaching the throne. Not all kings were created equal. There were great kings in the annals of history, and there were insignificant kings. Some kings ruled with absolute power such as Ahasuerus. We meet him in the book of Esther, and you remember his power was so absolute that if you just irritated him by showing up, he could kill you and there would be no questions asked by anyone. We can imagine that the reality of the approach to Ahasuerus had an effect upon how people came before him. They were influenced by that. But other kings had very little power, and approaching them reflected that difference. And then there was a matter of who was approaching the king. That had an effect upon this as well. There might be a court servant who is approaching a king. And that differs, of course, compared to a conquered general. There was a different approach expected when another king visited the realm in comparison, say, to the approach of one of the children of the king. There was different protocols depending on who the king was and depending on who you were as you approached the king. I invite you today to Psalm 24. As we turn our attention here to David, as his psalms, he reflects on how we should approach the king of the universe. Everything hinges on who this king is. And he will spend time looking at that at the beginning of the psalm and and particularly at the end of the psalm. And it depends on who we are who are approaching him. Looking at those two concepts as we come before the king, the God of the universe, we find three distinct sections in this hymn. You notice there it's probably broken out that way in your translation. The first two verses are separated From the next section, verses 3 through 6, and there's a selah there that marks perhaps a a break, but certainly uh, textually there is a break there. And then verses 7 through 10, the third uh, strain of the song, ending also with selah. In these three strains, in these three distinct sections of the hymn, we find combined a revelation of who God is as King of the universe and how we may approach Him in worship. So in the first place, David reveals that God is the sovereign Lord of creation. This is evident to us, but think of the significance of it as he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now David's song starts with a bold assertion that no pagan in that day or in ours would ever be willing to make. The ancient gods of the nations were assigned specific spheres of influence by their followers. 
And so there was a God of fertility. That was that God's job. And there was a God who ruled over the sea and a God of warfare and a God of storms and the like. And those gods went to war with one another trying to maintain their realm. Desperately clinging to their dominion that was assigned to them by their worshipers who were creating the gods in the image of the worshiper. And unbelievers of our day, there certainly are many pagans in this world who hold to multiplicity of gods, but in our setting, in our culture, fewer, certainly. But unbelievers in our day, in our setting, elbow God out to the periphery of any real significance over creation. And even those who claim to follow Him and honor Him many times have no place for God actually in His rule of creation. But we must get this straight. No one parcels out to the one true and living God a realm of influence. Rather, as David says in verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. He alone is the sovereign King of creation. Not only does the earth itself belong to Him, but also the fullness thereof. Everything on earth and in the larger cosmos belongs to the Lord. Animate and inanimate. Vegetation and animals and minerals and celestial bodies and all their beauty and wonder are His. Remember the Dutch statesman, theologian Abraham Kuyper, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century, said so beautifully and famously this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It's His. Every square inch of the cosmos includes those who dwell therein. Verse 1. God is the sovereign King who reigns over every man, woman, and child as King. So there's really only two categories here. There are those who get that, who understand this, that He is the King and the Lord, and there are those who do not. There are those who spend their life submitting to it and rejoicing in His role in this world, and there are those who spend their whole lives resisting it. You wonder sometimes what fuels those who reject God as Creator, but you see a desperate attempt to prove that He's not. Because he is or he's not. And there are huge implications depending on where we land. He is the Lord of those who dwell therein. Those who reject God, those who curse him, who assure us that he is irrelevant, who deny to him any active involvement in creation, he is their Lord as well. He is the Lord over all because he is creator of all. And so to resist Him as Creator is to rage against all glory and goodness and ultimate reality. It is also a raging against the Creator to abuse the earth then because it belongs to Him. To abuse it as if it belonged to us and to waste it on our own selfish purposes. It's also a raging against the Creator to idolize the earth as if its glory and worth are ultimate and not derived from Him. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness and everyone who dwells upon it. 
As verse 2 says, he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We don't talk like that, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but it did to the original readers. Water, particularly oceans, were viewed by ancient peoples as symbols of destructive chaos. There's a, a, a poetic and thematic idea there, and we see it even in the Genesis account, don't we, in chapter 1 and verse 2. And I think that's where the ancient cosmogonies are, are drawn from. In some sense, there was this watery chaos over which the Spirit of God hovers in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. A chaotic, empty, formless, primordial waters originally created initially by God, but hovered over by the Spirit because in that formlessness and emptiness, there's nothing to put your feet down on. But then, by separating the dry land out of the watery chaos, God firmly established the earth. With that Latin phrase, tierra firma solid earth, solid ground is the idea. The prophet Samuel's mother Hannah put it this way, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he set the world. It's all poetic. It's not intended to be scientific in its explanation here. But there are the pillars of the earth and the Lord is the one responsible for giving us tierra firma, solid ground. And the implication is then, of course, that he not only created it, but that he preserves the earth. He did not create the earth in order that it would falter, that it would totter, that it would be shattered, falling apart, but he sustains what he creates. 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 30 says, The world is established, it shall not be moved. And we know the earth will be destroyed by God's judgment and by the fire that will rework it and reconstitute it. But it stands firm because God has established it and God preserves it. In contrast to other cosmologies in the ancient world, God did not defeat chaos. He was never at war with chaos. There was nothing that chaos could do to God. It wouldn't even be a competition but in the Spirit of God hovering over the primordial waters, we see there rather a nurturer, a God of all creation, bringing about out of the chaos firm boundaries for the waters and firm land on which we can stand. He brings stunning beauty and fertility out of this chaos by the sheer word of His power. So out of that watery, chaotic, formless void, no solidity, no beauty, out of that formless void, he made this. You think of it, this? How did he create it? How did he think of this wonder that we call creation? You made this? There is stunning beauty. There is mind-numbing wonders. There's unfathomable depths of wisdom. And as we seek to know this earth and this creation, scientists continue to discover wonders and we realize we just are scratching the surface. Out of nothing, this chaotic waters, and out of them, all of this, from this grand, 
cosmic perspective. This one who reigns supreme over the universe because he is the creator of the universe. The psalm now narrows dramatically. We've been looking at the transcendence of God. He is over all things. He is the creator of everything, the Lord of all. But from that transcendence now, David moves to imminence, to the closeness of God. We might think this God of wonder and power, this creator, would have nothing to do with us as little people, little specks in this universe. But the psalm narrows not only to God's imminence with people, but it narrows from the earth itself to this small patch of land in Judea. At verse 3, David steers our consideration from praising the sovereign Lord of creation to approaching the holy God of imminence. He's a holy God. He is distinctive and morally pure. But He is also a God that is approachable and imminent. Verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's what you call a major gear shift. He is the creator of all things, the Lord of the universe, and now the question is, who will ascend to his hill? Who shall stand in his holy place? I mean, the first question we've got to ask coming out of this is, we can do that? God has a hill? I can ascend that hill and come before His his presence. The reference is obviously to Mount Zion. It is to Jerusalem and the hill where God chose to place His name before the temple is constructed by David's son Solomon is our setting here. But perhaps after David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city. We are here at this time, at the writing of this psalm, at a place where it has been clear now that God has identified this hill, this particular place, as the place of meeting uniquely with the God of the universe. In His mercy, God does this as He elects Israel and He chooses this particular hill in Jerusalem. And it is a hill, and it took a little bit to ascend it, to get up to it. And Israelite worshipers ascending this hill was a crucial aspect of their approach to God. And I think just as God created sheep and had a reason for that to help us to identify who we are in our relationship with Him, so I think He chose this hill to allow... It wasn't impossible to climb, but you, you thought about it as you moved up. And I think he chose this location so that the worshipers would ascend up this hill and as they ascended be considering how do we approach the God on top of the hill. He's not playing with paganism here. But he is helping them to consider their lives and their fitness. Who is fit to come before this awesome king of creation and live? The answer does not center on the performance of religious rituals or on conformity to religious rituals. Notice here in verse 4 that the answer deals with morality. It looks at the heart. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy presence? Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands. 
It's a figure of speech meaning one who has not murdered anyone, most specifically, but by extension, one who is not hurting others and harming others, but helping them. Those prepared to ascend this holy hill and to come into the presence of the Lord of the universe are those who are benefiting others and not harming them. Secondly, the person with pure heart, one with sincere motives, a clean conscience, pure thoughts, godly affections, one whose heart attitude is in tune with the moral calling of God. Thirdly, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. We have help here at Psalm 25 and verse 1 to help us know what that means, to lift up my soul to what is false. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. We can lift up our soul to the Lord, this creator and sustainer of all things, or we can lift up our soul to other things, other entities, other gods. So this is one, one who's prepared to approach God is one who does not worship false gods. This is one who does not value temporal things as ultimate. This is one who refuses to trust in empty substitutes for God. They're everywhere. In the ancient world, there were gods everywhere. The images were everywhere, reminding people of this pantheon of gods, all assigned their place, all who had to be appeased by sacrifice. In our day, it looks differently, but it's the appeal of the satisfaction of the flesh in a thousand ways. The ideas that draw us to trust in ourselves, the philosophies and the way of the world, the spirit of the age, calling us ever away to draw up and raise up our soul in dependence on these things. The one who is ready to approach God comes with a sincere devotion to the Lord as Lord, as King of kings and Lord of lords. This, is, this one refuses to trust in empty substitutes for God. And fourthly, it's, he is one who does not swear deceitfully, one who does not take advantage of others by hiding the truth, one who does not swear an oath to others with no intention of honoring that promise. Now, this is how we approach God. This is how we approach the holy king of the universe, the God of all goodness and moral perfection. We come in moral purity. We approach him that way. The transcendent maker and sustainer of the universe is approachable. And we take heart in that revelation. But you ascend his holy hill with a pure heart. And when you do, He does not consume you, but He receives you and profits you. Verse 5. He will receive this one who comes in this way with blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of, of salvation. Blessing. God's favor extended to us in covenantal loyalty and promises of good. And righteousness, as our judge, God assesses our standing before Him and He declares us just and fit to stand in His presence. Now there's a way that your brain and spirit might be directing you right now. I may speak to a few, and you're going down the entirely wrong path. 
in hearing this, you're saying moral purity. I must be righteous before God. I need to have a standing before Him by doing right things and making myself right in my approach to the Lord. That's not bad thinking as far as it goes. But the problem that can come is this may be coming across to us as this is something that I achieve by being good. But I want you to look very carefully there at verse 5 and to notice that righteousness and blessing are something that is received. This is how you approach the holy king of the universe, the God of all goodness and moral perfection. You approach him in this way, but these are gifts that the Lord gives to the worshiper. Now let's think about this. As the Israelites ascended the holy hill and came to worship Yahweh at Jerusalem, they did not come empty-handed. You came with a sacrifice. And yet, the worshiper of Yahweh is fundamentally a receiver, not a giver. The worshiper sacrifices, but in sacrificing wealth and time and devotion important things, but ultimately small things, the worshiper receives from God blessing and righteousness. Very, very big things. This Lord of the universe receives us as we come in right standing with Him and gives to us blessing and righteousness. He extends favor and covenantal loyalty to us in His blessing. He declares us righteous in our standing before Him, and these are gifts. You see these four requirements again? A verse 4, clean hands. I don't harm other people. I'm a blessing and good to others. A pure heart that is right with God and does not entertain sin, and there's no lack of devotion or infidelity in my heart to God as I think of other philosophies and other gods of this world. And I don't swear deceitfully. I don't say one thing and mean another. As you look at those things, if we're really alive, every one of us falls short of those requirements. So there's this unique tension. Here's what you must be to ascend the hill in that context, to come and to approach God in His presence. Here's what you must be. But we're never quite that. We fall short in our sin. But the beauty of it is latent here, and it will be brought out much more fully in Scripture as it develops. But the beauty is that God gives righteousness. It's not something that you earn, so you earn your way to approach Him, but rather it is a gift that He gives. And as the Bible unfolds its revelation, we find that Jesus Himself is the one who lives a perfect life in sinless, right, in sinless righteousness. We learn then that He dies in our place to suffer the sentence of death, the sentence we deserve for breaking God's laws. Jesus then gives us His righteous standing. He earns it for us, and as we trust Him to pay sin's debt in our place, He grants to us His righteousness, and He says of one who is a sinner, justified, righteous. You have this standing that I give to you by my grace, and you are ready to ascend to the hill, to approach God, not on the basis of your righteousness and good deeds, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. 
That's what you call good news. To know that I can approach the one true and living God, I can come into His presence and to do so because of what He has given me, not because of what I have earned. And so verse 6, he says, such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The generation here is the kind of person, the breed of person. Such are, are those kinds of people who seek Him. To seek is to willingly align my life to God's will, to rejoice and to walk in fellowship with Him. God does not give blessing and righteousness to those who don't seek it. He gives it to those who look to Him with longing and expectation. I wonder if we see God this way, if we see Him as a giver of righteousness, a giver of blessing, who pours out His mercies upon those who seek Him and come to Him and ask from Him this righteous standing. Do we gather for worship with that sense? Are we habitually seeking His face? Is the pattern of your life such that you could prove, I am one who seeks the Lord? He's the sovereign Lord of creation. He's the holy God of imminence. And thirdly, He is the King of glory. Verse 7, as we deal with that third strain. And it is fairly straightforward, but it is rejoicing words. The psalmist writes, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. To lift up one's head means that you lift up your eyes. You perk up your ears, you stand erect and at attention, you crane the neck, all in joyful anticipation. And it's, it's like he's talking to the gates of the ancient city, I think probably the Jebusite city at this point in history. They've been around for a long time, and so they're ancient gates and they're ancient doors, and he's talking to them as if they're alive, as if they're people, and says, lift up your heads in anticipation so that the King of glory may come into you. Or these gates, these large structures that were built into the wall, and you pass through them into the city. And so the, the call here for the gates is to allow the king to come into the city. Some believe that the context here is the procession as David brought the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath Yerim into Jerusalem. And uh, that this is the context where this psalm was written. We're not given that. We don't know if that's the case. But certainly there's a procession here, isn't there? Lift up your heads, gates. The king of glory may come in. And then the question is, well, who is this king? We, we realize he's not a king that's confined to the hill. He's outside of the city. He's been in conquest and he comes in. But who is he precisely? Verse 8, who is this king of glory? <clears throat> the answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. I don't think this question is seeking information so much as it is announcing and celebrating the identity of the king. And this is none other than the king of the universe in verses 1 and 2. And the God who ultimately situates his temple on the holy mount. He is the warrior king who is strong and mighty in battle. That is, he is a glorious king who subjects not only physical chaos, but also secures the redemption of his people by defeating their spiritual enemies. 
And so as the king's procession comes closer, you can almost uh, see it. There's an anticipation that builds. Who is this king of glory? The Lord mighty and strong, mighty in battle. So, verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory, that the king of glory may come in. Again, the celebratory question. Why did they not get it the first time? Verse 10, who is this king of glory? It's not that. It's announcing it again. Say it to me again. Who is this king of glory? Verse 10, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of angelic armies that conquers his foes, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory the king of splendor, the king to be exalted, the king to be celebrated, the king that we welcome into the city. Whatever the original context, David pictures the divine king entering the city. Later revelation connects this theme with the return of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return to Jerusalem to set up his earthly kingdom. There was a day, you remember that in the life of Jesus when the crowds received him in Jerusalem. And they threw down their cloaks and they took palm branches and threw them in the street and the donkey on which Christ rode into town. Remember that? They called out the messianic rejoicing. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus going into the city knows he's going into his death. But the crowds receive Him with this kind of orientation. Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. The King of glory has come. But we know that at that time He was killed. But there is a day coming and we can rest our soul upon it. when God's faithful remnant will lift up their heads And they will crane their necks and they will perk up their ears and they'll stand perhaps on their tiptoes in the crowd as the King of glory passes on His way. And the returned Jesus Christ enters from off of the Mount of Olives, ascends up the hill and enters into Jerusalem to establish His millennial kingdom. This is not just a good story from the past. This is the hope on which we rest our faith that Christ will come again, that He will reign from Jerusalem as the Scriptures teach. And on that day, the entire universe will lift up its head in anticipation and peace and prosperity will become the new order of the day for a thousand years until He brings it all to an end and turns the kingdom over to the Father forever and ever. So, as we consider this and we put it in touch with all that is to come in the New Testament, this, let it be clear, is no average king. Not all kings are created equal, and this king has no equal. He is the king of glory. He is the sovereign Lord of creation. He is the holy God of imminence who draws us into His presence and invites us to know Him and to love Him. He is the King of glory. And we're not going to worship Him. I mean, what is the point as we come to consider who He is? We will not worship Him in spirit and in truth until we come to terms with His Lordship. 
We're not coming to terms with a Christian tradition. We're not coming ultimately to terms with what we have learned in our Christian homes, perhaps. We're not coming to terms with what people think and how they've written and where our experience has been even. God in His grace, in His mercy, brings us to experience Him in various turning points of our life. But that's not ultimately where we center things. What we're coming to terms with is the fact that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That He rules the universe with sovereign power, that He invites us to come to Him. And so the whole orientation is that it's about Him. It's about His Lordship. It's about who He is. And we are not going to worship Him in spirit and in truth until we approach Him in fear and live in expectation of His return. To begin to see all of life from the standpoint of who this King is and who we are as we approach Him. In fact, I think in the life of this church, and I just leave it in these walls, and certainly many churches throughout the world that we would identify with, but in, within the context and life of this church, that's what our life together is all about, is coming to know who this King is, relating to Him, understanding who He is, knowing what the future holds. And it's coming to talk about our approach to Him. How do we come into His presence? How can we be fit to stand before the Lord? This identifies our life. This is who we are. The hymn writer George Wiesel poetically captured the spirit of this future hope as we look to our King. In his hymn, he said, Lift up your heads, Ye mighty gates, behold, the King of glory waits. The King of kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is here. Life and salvation He doth bring. Wherefore, rejoice and gladly sing. In that story, in that message, is my identity. And so all of this, when we talk about God as King and how we approach Him, it destroys our little stories as ultimate universes. It brings them to a good end. And it teaches us that our lives are real, we're alive, we're in this story, but the greater story is about this King who has created the universe who rescues sinners and who is coming again to establish His kingdom forever and ever and to live in light of who He is, to seek the Lord as a way of life, I identify with that grand story. And the emptiness and the futility of self-centered living slowly dies. And the grandeur of seeing Christ for who He is, continues to be fueled and come alive in us. So that my story is connected to that higher story, to that cloud above. Not in an ethereal sense, but in a broader, larger, bigger sense. My life caught up in His life. 
When I know the story of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, I live all of my life seeking to fit myself to approach Him because I don't want to be in anyone else's presence more than I want to be in His. And so I see myself in life, my story in His story. And I see myself when we sing the hymn for all the saints. The King of glory passes on His way. I see myself on my tiptoes in the crowd and watching the Savior come into His city. And that's better to me than making a million dollars and being a famous person and everybody lining up with my little selfless life. I see myself in that crowd and say, there's my center. It's the King as he passes on his way into the eternal city, into, the, into Jerusalem. And then past that, I see that I'm not just one in the crowd, but in his merciful grace, as I come to understand this king and who he is, I realize I don't approach him as an enemy. I don't approach him as another king. but I approach him as his adopted son. Because of the gift that he gives of blessing and righteousness, I come before this king awed and knowing that he's larger than I can even begin to comprehend, but knowing that he bids me come as a son, as a daughter, as one to whom he's given life and whom he freely gives access. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? I hope that you can say, I will. Not on the authority of my goodness, not because of what I have accomplished, but because Jesus' righteousness has fit me to come into the presence of the Father. To come before His presence with joy. How rich we are as children of the King. Let's bow for prayer. Our King and our God, we praise you for the privilege to see our lives in your story and to think of Jesus coming into that city and setting up his kingdom for a thousand years, crushing the curse, and ultimately in the final battle, crushing Satan. Lord, our lives are filled as we think of the wonder of this story. And we thank you that you have bid us to come into your presence this way, to come in prayer and to rest in you. And we seek to do that. For those that do not know Christ as Savior, who do not understand the exchange of their sinfulness for Christ's righteous standing as a free gift of your grace, I pray that you'd enlighten them and draw them and help them to see their need to repent 
of self at the center of their universe and to trust in you as their King and Lord and Savior and Father. May this be a day of salvation. We know that it is and ask that you would draw to yourself those who do not know Christ as Savior and help us now as we lift our voices in song contemplating the wonder of the King who calls us into his presence. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and for just a few moments in silence, respond in your heart to this word.